Welcome to um, meetup number 33 of the Data on Kubernetes community. Um, we are very, very excited, as always. Probably think of another word, excited. We are ecstatic to have Alex Jones with us. Um, Alex is no stranger to talks. He, we were just mentioning about the different ones he's been doing this year. Um, extremely active on Twitter, also has a blog. Um, was also watching a video that I will try to link um, that I put on LinkedIn earlier of a talk that you gave in in January um, for some folks in Brazil um, talking about the life of an SRE. I think it's really, really cool because I think a lot of times it's like, what does it mean to be an SRE? You have very good drawings as well that are very easy to understand, like the okay. life of an SRE. Showing the evolution of DevOps and, and the different things that are involved in it, ownership, responsibility, who's in charge of what. Um, but anyway, today Alex is here to, to share with us quite a few different ideas. I always want to remind people that Feel free to check us out, the DOK, DOK.community. Um, you can probably see our links on screen um, for Twitter, for Slack, for LinkedIn. Um, we're there. If you have an idea for a talk, if you have questions, please get in. We have wonderful people like Alex and our Slack that can, that can help you out with that. Um, so that being said, you know, we're just going over a little bit about, uh, about who Alex is, about what he's doing. But I'll kind of let you fill that in a little bit better. You know your VP of SRE at, uh, at JP Morgan. Um, but have, have had different jobs in the past, had an interesting professional evolution to get to where you are. Um, but Alex, who are you? What are you doing here today? Yeah, so um, thank you, Bart. That's a, that's a great, uh, great segue. So um, I currently work inside the observability SRE, so reliability space um, at, at JP Morgan. You know, it's a, it's a large company. There are many people doing, doing similar roles, but I'm very lucky in that I get to run kind of the chapter across quite a large part of the of the group that I'm in. Um, you know, fundamentally, I think what drew me towards uh, joining today is that there's some interesting things that you pick up when you're working at large scale enterprise. And I'm really hoping that we can uh, delve into some of those and uh, I can maybe share a few ideas of some of the challenges we've ha had and how we've tried to uh, overcome them. And maybe you can come away from this, hopefully learning a little bit more. And uh, of course, as, as Bart mentioned, happy to uh, connect on Twitter or, uh, or, or Slack afterwards. And I have to say as well, too, um, I, I'm sure you may be booked up with all these slots because I even reserved one, I think, in, in the next few weeks. If you ever yep. want to have a coffee and chat with Alex, that's also an option as well, too. Absolutely. Um, very nice to see someone who's transparent, um, so transparent, really, with the pay it forward kind, pay it forward kind of mentality, um, which is very, very nice to see. Um, you're very busy. Do you? And because you were also <laughs> in this talk that I, that I, that I, that I watched of you in, in January, you were mentioning that a good SRE team by default should be international, um, you know, following the sun. Do you find that you have an odd timetable because of that? Yeah, so I, I think it's kind of a, an interesting one. And I think when, I, when you think of reductively what an SRE is, it's someone who's very accountable, right? You have to have that element of trust. And I think w the whole idea behind the follow the sun model is that you can rely on somebody in their natural time, time zone in their working hours to be able to raise the alarm, right, if they need you. So there shouldn't be that kind of culture of having to constantly watch your back and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be. So I'm lucky to say that, you know, my colleagues in other time zones, whether that's in the US or in, 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 in Asia, are, are extremely good at what they do. And we have a really good working relationship to make sure that if there are any issues, they'll immediately kind of raise the alarm when necessary. Very good. Um, and just as a brief summary, because we were earlier talking about music and also Alex is a climber and also <laughs> collects vinyl, which means you might be a DJ. 
Yeah, I think you're making, you're aggrandizing it a bit. I think I'm, I'm a hobbyist DJ, a, a boulderer, and I play on guitar a bit. But yeah, I, I try <laughs> to, to blow off steam when it's, you know, non-technical stuff, right? Yeah, but I think it's also, I think it's also important as a sign that, you know, that I feel that generally the more you can enjoy things outside of your job, the better you're probably going to do your job itself. Um, I must, and also mentioning music, sports, things like that. There's got to be something for everybody out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think that it, there's an interesting like um, dichotomy between being able to go do something physical and just sort of resetting your mind and then coming back and doing something technical. That's true. Yeah. Because it's easy to get saturated. All right. That being said, Alex, let's just jump right into the presentation. Sure. Just as a reminder for everybody, leave your questions in, in here in the chat. We can also continue the conversation in Slack. So for whatever reason, if we don't get to them, um, we will definitely continue the conversation. Cool. So thank you so much, Bart, for introducing me. This is uh, about making observability accessible. Um, I think it's about 35, 40 minutes at a push uh, material. So I hope that it's, it's entertaining. Um, I'm going to take you through kind of my journey over the past couple of years, building out observability as a platform, right? And serving it to internal developer communities. So with that said, it's really important to establish what I mean by accessible. And it, it is the traditional sense of accessibility um, of enabling it to, um, you know, either a person or a group of persons um, to get, have access to a system, right? In, in, a, in, a, in a simple way, but there is a, an intersection with developer experience here, right? So specifically when we think of accessibility in terms of software engineering, we're thinking of, you know, ease of use, um, inclusiveness so that various folks, whether it's neurodiversity or any other um, form of uh, inclusion that we, we want to try and establish here, have that ability to use your products and make sure that there are ways and inroads for them to, to be successful. Um, and as we'll see throughout this talk, I hope that I can start to show you some of the ways that we're really trying to, to bridge that gap to make uh, it super accessible for folks within our organization. So a little bit of history. Um, I'm a, I'm a VP site reliability, site reliability engineer. Um, it, it's, it sounds really uh, impressive, but VP in a, in a bank, it's kind of a weird structure. It's very coarse grain, right? So you only have like four or five ranks in a bank. So you kind of end up uh, being chucked into a bucket, but I run um, two teams at the moment, uh, which build SRE tooling. One of which is building the front end, which is essentially a, uh, an aggregator of metrics and collections of, of metrics, uh, logs and traces, and another team which is, has sort of an OLAP capability on the back and can then process those metrics and logs and traces and produce really interesting business value. I also work a little bit with the Continuous Delivery Foundation, uh, doing a few podcasts, you know, representing at booths, and a little bit on the DevOps Institute um, side as well. And, you know, just to round that out, one of the things that people often ask me is sort of what was my, my career journey? And so I kind of tried to visualize it in a way that made sense because the key takeaway I want to sort of represent here is that it's nonlinear, right? Like I spent a bit of time doing a lot of different stuff within engineering. I, I worked as a, a mobile engineer. I then went to become like a technical lead. Then I switched over to work at Microsoft building out Fable um, and then moved over to be sort of more of a senior design engineer. And that's really kind of where I then started to find a love for, 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 for large scale systems. And, you know, before I knew it, I was on the trajectory where I was really getting into the nitty gritty of, you know, how does this micro SAN array work? How does this blade system work? How does this hypervisor work? And so, you know, over the course of five, five or seven years, I started to build up this uh, kind of velocity towards managing and, and building, um, you know, large scale infrastructure and teams that help support that. So, you know, that's kind of my story. And I think, that's a, that's a good point to kind of take our, our first um, refrain and think, you know, what actually is observability here? And what, what am I talking about? Because I think there's often a, a misnomer 
about what observability is, you know, and it's, it's a really interesting subject because I think the definition in terms of like control theory doesn't quite do it justice, right? So let's, let's think about observability uh, sort of 101. And you know, for folks who are familiar with this, it's a good refresher anyway, right? So we have a system which essentially is, you know, this could represent a bank, could represent a startup, it doesn't really matter. It's a sort of typical set of you know, three-tier architecture activities. Um, and in this particular scenario, you know, as you're growing the business out and you're, you're putting more load on it, you start to see that there are um, essentially gaps in the behavior of that system versus the desired state, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you input your card number or you try and get a user and then that fails. And so, you know, we've had monitoring solutions for years and this, this isn't a new problem. This has come straight out of the kind of annals of history where you've got any sort of computer system needs to have a level of um, testing and a, a level of um, observation uh, accessibility to it. So you need to have a way of seeing what's going on, right? And just to really compound what I was saying about not being able to see what's going on, you know, you can see things like um, a queuing system going down being really crucial, right? Without a level of observability or a monitoring within the, um, you know, this domain, you're going to not know where these problems are. And this is a simple example that is actually quite difficult to diagnose if you don't have a full suite of um, you know, telemetry capabilities. And just to show you sort of what I mean here is typically a front-end application might be sending data to a, you know, to a microservice. And that could be like a FAS, that could be a dedicated pod, whatever that might be. You know, these may well be producers for a queuing system such as Kafka or Rabbit or something like that. And then this might be consumed on the back end, and that back end might then go off and cache that credit card detail or fetch that user for you. Now, without really understanding what's going on here, if we start to see a breakdown and that get user or that uh, create user stops working, we're going to start to see a problem and we can't really identify where that area is occurring. And so just to really drive home that point, it's, it's super important that we have a level of uh, observability on our system so that we can understand where things are occurring. And also it's the second order of identifying, you know, the root cause of this. And I think that's often the problem is that people have a level of very lightweight metrics and monitoring. They say, you know, job done, you know, brush the hands off. And they, and they think, you know, that's enough. But ultimately you need to get to that second order of problem solving and figure out what the root cause is. And in this case, you could misanalyze, misanalyze this quite easily. Back pressure from the microservices could easily be thought to be, um, you know, an issue with the microservices themselves. Equally, it's quite common to get a consumer deadlock when your topic has been drained uh, and that equally could be misdiagnosed as something completely different to the actual root cause, which in fact um, is, is going to be more, more in the wheelhouse of it being to do with the broker and the zookeeper metadata storage on the same server. So just a high level example there of kind of why we think it's so important to have um, these different pillars of, of telemetry. And that's the first time I've used the word pillars, right? Because it, they kind of are pillars because they're, they're foundational. Um, and here's that same example with these, these three pillars. And the three pillars, which I'll go on to elaborate about in a moment are, you know, tracing, logs, and metrics. At least currently in the landscape and the way that we think about things, you don't have a holistic view unless you at least have these three intersecting dimensions on your, your systems. And so you can see that when a team puts a level of effort into instrumenting, um, you know, these particular systems, you can suddenly start to make insights, right? So as soon as I understand the health of microservices as expressed through either you know, one of the five reduce signals, and reduces are a little on the hand measurement here, so R-E-D-U-S, so that would be rate, errors, duration, um, you know, and then it would be potentially like uh, uptime and saturation. Uh, these, these are good golden signals. 
um, for you to be able to understand the health of, of a system. And, you know, I think that even if you go and do the bare minimum and say, you know, a small microservice or a backend, and I'm just going to provide these five signals, then you, you've gone a really good way to starting to get some, some useful metrics there. And equally, um, we think about log collection and aggregation as a super important part of this process to help tell that story, right? So metrics form the empirical backbone of your observability and logs and traces give you contextual information around that. And so, you know, logs, traces and metrics in terms of how do we actually visualize these, you will have been probably familiar with tooling like on the screen here. And I'm not gonna discuss the tooling itself too much um, in terms of visualizations, but what I will say is that often you'll find your SREs at work with several Chrome tabs open, right? You'll have someone looking in logs, you have someone looking at the, the traces throughout the, in the spans, and then you have somebody trying to like correlate that between the three of them. So it's, it's quite an invested uh, occupation being an SRE and also trying to perform this level of diagnostics. But believe it or not, prior to that, it was even harder, right? If you only had, um, you know, one of these facets, you'd be really kind of hamstrung to, to figure out what the root cause was without having to do some, some guesswork to narrow down the problem. So, you know, I've spoken a little bit interchangeably there and I apologize because there is a misnomer around like what is observability versus monitoring. Um, and to me, it's kind of a similar case between like DevOps and SRE, right? You think of like monitoring is one of the implementations of observability. So it's a subset, right? In a similar way, SRE is kind of a, an implementation of DevOps. Um, observability focuses a lot on the characteristics and, and really, in summary, the way I would describe observability is, is the following. I would say observability is the field of actively identifying the behavior of a dynamic environment of changing complexity through its outputs, right? I should be able to understand that environment through the metrics, the logs, and the tracing data in its entirety. Um, and if I can't, that means that it's not a completely observable system. And I apologize for the snarky little smiley there. I, uh, I couldn't find a good definition, so I had to just kind of like write my own. Um, but, but ultimately, the, the point remains that it, it is a more all-encompassing and an active form of hypothesis-based approach to, uh, to monitoring alone. So I've spoken a little about what observability is and some of the benefits in terms of you're able to find things on systems, you're able to figure out problems and, and identify root causes much faster. Let's talk about like what a typical setup actually looks like. And this is where we're going to start to think about the context of accessibility, right? So I'm going to pick three observability tools. And I, I've distinctly chosen to use uh, tools from the CNCF just because, you know, they're not vendor locked in and they're, they're pretty familiar off the shelf commodity uh, services. So we've got um, FluentD here for logging, Jaeger tracing for, for distributed tracing and, and Prometheus for our, our metrics uh, capture. And between the three of these, they form you know, the backbone of many, many observability stacks and they're used in, in different flavors and they can usually be complemented by, by tools such as proxies or exporters uh, and so on and so forth. So you know, your basic infrastructure um, if you're an SRE or if you're a, a small team trying to build out observability, kind of needs to comprise of something similar, right? And this is where the, the point around accessibility first manifests. There's a lot going on here, right? This is a super simple example, but there's still, there's quite a lot of boxes. You've got these things called CRDs, which are Kubernetes custom resource definitions. You've got this idea of having several types of data store. You've got some pipelines for Jaeger, but you know, this is the bare minimum to really run this at any kind of operable scale. Um, I've used logging operator here. And just to be clear, uh, logging operator is a, an implementation of FluentD by Banzai Cloud that kind of brings to life FluentD in a cluster so that you can manage, it manages pods through an operator style model. And it also accepts 
CRDs to manage the inputs and outputs of logs. So, you know, there's, there's a fair bit going on there. Now, let's just think about the previous diagram with the, uh, you know, the simple little hello world type infrastructure. As soon as you then start integrating that diagram into your, inf your observability infrastructure, there's a lot of moving parts, right? You've got um, services you're connecting to, especially if this is cross cluster or this is just on virtual machines, you've got to wire this all together. And you'll see also, it's not just a push-based approach, right? You've got pull-based architecture here at play as well. You're pushing your logs with Fluent Bit, right? And you're pushing your traces from your SDKs baked into your services. But Prometheus is a pull-based system. So he wants to go out and figure out where is your stuff, right? So in this example, Prometheus is talking to its exporter. It's scraping from the exporter to understand what's going on in Cassandra. He's scraping from the exporter to understand what's going on in Kafka in this example. So already you're getting this sort of information saturation where a single person is, is decidedly the persona of someone who's a dev, but also wants to understand this kind of DevOps cloud engineering element just to, to set this kind of stuff up and operate it. And again, you know, the configuration of this sort of stuff is complicated. You've got a really um, kind of a poorly defined landscape of custom resource definitions and config maps in terms of user persona, because there is an expectation with a lot of these tools that you're both, right? As a user, you have to not only set up the Prometheus operator or the alert manager config, you've also then got to set up the alerting rules, the recording rules. And equally, let's say I want to deploy my application and just send a log to Splunk, right? I can't just do that. I have to set up some kind of CRD or YAML file or any file just to do that as well. And, you know, you might say or pause for thought and say, hey, you know, in reality, there's a DevOps engineer at my company that does that. You know, that, that's just a, an abstraction or it's just a, a toil by proxy, right? Because that's still work that has to happen. And so we do see that there's a pain point here. Whenever people want to set up stuff, there's a knowledge transfer that either needs to happen or there's a dependency on just being able to look at your data. And I think, I think that's a glaring red light. Orchestration is another really, really interesting place because if I'm being reductive and thinking purely of like, what do I need in a repo to get this stuff rolling? It's kind of a lot of stuff, right? So in my example, I would need uh, a dashboard to visualize it in Superset or Grafana or whatever I might choose. I need that rule so that I could say, hey, my app, my app has gone, you know, it's, it's gone, the P99 um, is set to something like, you know, 99.99% uh, um, you know, uptime. So I might have a health check on there. And if that health check fails, do something else. So you know, there's a lot of data that's starting to be crystallized in these CRDs. And again, this is expert knowledge. You know, this is really, um, this is really cutting edge stuff. You need to know how to write YAML. You need to know how to write expressions. Uh, and equally with service monitors, you need to have some context as to how the cluster actually works and the infrastructure there. So again, my, my point I'm trying to make here is there's an immense amount of operational overhead uh, from the application perspective in trying to get up and running. When we come to querying, I've, I've taken a few examples because you know, I think of uh, Splunk as one of the simplest systems to use. I don't necessarily think it's it's the best in a best of breed or best in class, but I think that what they get right is that Splunk makes the querying UI super simple. However, Splunk's not the end of the story, right? Because you may well also be using Lucene inside of Elasticsearch, right? And then what's the difference between a compound query and aggregate query? Um, you know, what, what if you want to search on specific indices? This is a cottage industry of data here, right? Where you have to start thinking about the DSLs for each of these uh, particular tools, and it takes a penalty. 
I've used this stuff for years and I still have to look things up, right? PromQL is, is very well defined and actually quite simple to use once you understand it. But if you're going in there just to set up some, some expressions for the first time ever, there's a steep learning curve. And I think that it, it becomes uh, quite exclusive and it's, it's a real um, inadvertent form of gatekeeping that occurs within engineering is that we de design these DSLs to suit our products specifically, but don't really think about the, uh, the user experience at the end, at least not as a first class um, point on our on our agenda, and as I said, out of the out of these, the, the easiest to read for me is this kind of format here with Splunk, where it's pretty straightforward, right? It's almost like reading a sentence. So, with all that said, and you know, we've got our application, and we've we've instrumented it, we've set it up, and we've done all the things I've just described. You can eventually then go to your dashboarding, and you can set this kind of stuff. But you know, again, that that's a that's a field of expertise. You need to understand what you're thresholding, like. Is it good that I've got a certain rate on the amount of logins per second? What is it that I want to alert on? And you know, it really means that there is a, a level of competency required to understand how the system operates. And if there isn't that competency, you have to partner quite heavily. And, and the reason that I think that um, you know, we're moving away from partnering with, with DevOps engineers and more towards self-service with SREs is because there is a general trend towards uh, having micro single tenant clusters and having your own infrastructure stacks that a team can operate within. So again, you know, maybe some of this is starting to become a little bit clear around why not everybody is running this sort of three pillar, you know, utopia, nirvana of, of observability. The current tooling essentially is really predicated quite, quite strong bias towards people understanding cloud native architecture. Um, and, and to the points that I was making prior to this, you know, for XYZ, you can see that at every turn, you need to be on both sides of the fence. You need to understand either custom resources, the inner workings of Kubernetes. You cannot just build a Java application and say, okay, I think I want to measure the actuator, right? That, that might work in a sort of version 0.1, but when you want to put this in production with a three-tier kind of system, a three-pillar type kind of system, you need to have um, uh, an opinion on all your API endpoints and have an ability to understand what metrics are important to you. And so I really think that one of the first big pieces that we, we need to sort of um, investigate here is how do you start to make the, the tooling not so based on people being ex subject matter experts, right? So I've surveyed many people around this. And again, the indication and the, the, the trend is towards the complexity of the configuration is really a detractor from teams on board into this stuff. And what I mean by that is that essentially when you have an option at a large scale company, if you're you know, to do this stuff, if, if you don't have to, you're not going to, right? Because it's not sort of a, a, a on rails kind of glide path experience. And it really makes it complicated um, to try and get your app out on time. If you've got to go with all these extra steps, I got to write some YAML, it's got to go through a different build pipeline, it fails, right? I'm fed up, right? I've had enough. So now that we've taken that journey and we understand sort of what observability is, how you would build a basic observability setup, it's really important now to focus on the, key, the needs of the end users and, and what is it they're trying to do anyway. So I posted this the other day and I, I think it's so sort of, you know, it's tongue in cheek, but I think it succinctly puts some pretty typical problems and some pretty typical conversations you'll end up having. Uh, at an organization, if you run a cloud platform team or you work within observability especially, is that developers have a very um, kind of deterministic approach to this, right? There'll be an assessment based on like what's available, pick the easiest one to use, how do I make it work? Um, and let's get going from there. And the reason that I think it was interesting and important to sort of create a little uh, illustration out of this is that 
it is kind of a, uh, a one-shot thing most times, right? I've seen alert rules where somebody's not changed it for three years. So they'll, they'll go away, they'll set up their alerting rule, and then they'll come back. And so what you need to take away from that is if they're only going to have one very low touch, um, you know, kind of interaction with you, you need to make sure that they come away from that really positive and feeling like they're empowered. So they don't need to go through that cycle again, because, you know, if you're doing this for 500 teams and you can't answer these questions and you can't help them produce the answers they want from the data they've got, then I think that you're in trouble. And that last sentence, help them produce the answers they want from the data they've got. I'll come on to elaborate on a bit more, but from, from the point I'm trying to make here is essentially that you see a lot of very similar use cases where folks just want to onboard in a very simple manner. So what I distill from all this is, you know, engineers want platforms with few visible constraints, right? I don't want to go into Grafana and see it's all locked down. Equally, I don't want to go into Jaeger and not be able to see other people's traces. I like to feel like I'm free on the platform to explore, to build stuff. And, you know, whether I'm looking inside of uh, Prometheus UI and I want to check out some, some uh, histograms or whether I just want to check out some gauges that I set up, I don't want to feel like there are any restrictions. And so that comes with, a, with its own kind of penalty, but it's something we, we kind of look to achieve uh, in, the, in the subsequent steps that I'm going to discuss in a moment. Dashboard should come as standard, right? This is part of this on-rails experience. Don't expect engineers to start building dashboards before they've got anything to put in production, right? This should be an artifact of upfront automation effort to have a level of metrics that are being scraped and then are able to be bound and displayed in some basic like reduce style dashboards. Onboarding should be self-service deterministic. Uh, yeah, it's not raising a JIRA ticket. It's not having a conversation with someone. It's opening a PR, getting that PR merged and then potentially going off and doing something. And telemetry data needs to be accurate because engineers, um, at least the folks who I've had the pleasure of working with, are very uh, precise about what they're sending. They'll often review their own logs on, on whether that's Kate's or whether that's Cloud Foundry or whatever that might be. And they'll check those logs against what you're seeing. And any discrepancy shakes uh, people's faith, right? And that accumulation of faith and of goodwill is what you live or die by when you're offering a platform service like this. Uh, and lastly, you know, alerting and thresholds must be integral for diagnostics of applications. So this is actually something we would enforce on developers, right? If you're going to have a level of monitoring, you need to be able to have alerts on it because we're not just collecting your, your tags and labels for free. You need to be able to do something with those. So how do we take that complicated and rich narrative and sort of bias it towards accessibility, right? How do we kind of remove the blockers, make it so that anybody on the team can deploy? You know, you're not the most senior person. You don't have to necessarily be uh, the expert at cloud, but can still be successful, right? Having some level of observability. And again, it comes back to this idea that we're trying to, we're trying to really codify uh, this idea of inclusivity into the way that we bring people into this. So we build the experience, right? So we think about all of the problems we spoke about and let's try and work through them. So infrastructure wise, it was initially predicated on this idea that you're almost compositing two systems together that are atomic units that you have a sort of an interface between. The real solution that I found works at a, at a much higher scale is to have this idea of um, an articulation of where you want to be able to monitor and uh, in a very, very opinionated way of setting that up. And what I mean by that is when a tenanted application is deployed into their cluster, into their namespace, they don't need to do anything, right? In terms of they will already have the auto wiring for the service discovery of where the collector endpoint is in the observer cluster. So in that particular example, let's say it's Jaeger, 
I don't want to have to go off and write some, you know, Helm set such and such so that I can send to the right service. That should come for free, right? And by doing so, I know that anytime somebody blueprints and creates a new tenanted application in the cluster, they're sending to the right collector endpoint. The secondary effect of this is I can scale the entire observability cluster as we start to get more traffic. So you have like a two-dimensional scaling component here as well. You'll see that I mentioned Envoy filter chain. And this is still in the same kind of wheelhouse of collectors because you know Envoy proxy is a very good way of routing through the protocol of Jaeger, right? Envoy will support the, uh, the gRPC and both the UDP formats of Jaeger. And of course, using filters, you can add a level of rate limiting because I think that as you come to a more mature infrastructure, you need to start thinking about quality of service. Quality of service is crucial because if you start to go to a system that has any sort of queuing, you'll find that your QoS is crushed um, as soon as you have a highly uh, active user on your system. Obviously, you have strategies around partitioning and of topicking and consumer, uh, consumer grouping, but ultimately there will be a, a large infrastructure penalty unless you can have a level of quality of service easily on early on. And I can go for, I can talk a little further on that offline, but there are several strategies around that. Um, and so, you know, this is our, this is our ingress to our cluster. We've talked about collectors. We have metrics being uh, scraped from a known endpoint service. And then finally, we have a very opinionated stack of visualizations. You know, you'll see Grafana, Superset, Tableau all mentioned kind of in the same breath there, because, you know, this is going to hit upon something I'll describe later, but that is catering for not just the SRE or the developer persona. So what does an ideal configuration look like if somebody is kind of trying to prescribe this to engineering teams? Well, you know, it's a complicated situation where, as we showed earlier on, you have lots of different types of data constructs you need to push into your cluster or into your, your environment. Really, the, the key to success here is to have uh, forkable, forkable um, repositories that have all the batteries included, right? So through the readme, the developer or the engineer knows exactly what they need to do. And where possible, they need to do nothing, right? So when I think about like service monitors coming as a subchart, and I mentioned that whole idea of the YAML file and not wanting to kind of touch it, you know, why would they, right? Because you know the doc file. A lot of mention, okay? have a level of standards on how you build your repositories, you know that you can go and um, build pipelines that can look for these components and then start to uh, synthesize them to create something that is orchestratable into the cluster. And it's interesting, that whole idea of orchestration, right? You've got to use a repository. It's full, full, full of this data. It's full of these constructs that you want to deploy. You know, how do you go about taking that and deploying that out into an environment? Right. And the naive implementation would be to say, okay, well, you know, your user repository might have to open a PR, you know, and my PR might be like, hey, I want to deploy a Grafana dashboard somewhere. Right. And that's fine. You know, I go off, I deploy Grafana, and then I can start using it. But, you know, those are two kind of incongruent activities because I got to do that offline. I then got to merge my pipeline and it doesn't feel right. So, you know, a slightly more um, reproducible way of doing this would to be, be to have sort of a singular pipeline that actually has multi-steps, right? So that you can go off and have this element of the pipeline composed and then orchestrated and deployed at the same time as the rest of your systems and services. And to go a step further, we introduce the auto wiring component, 
which means that when you actually have a Helm chart or a, a Kubernetes manifest, we can inject the, the parameters and properties we care about so that your service gets auto-wired up into that cluster. And this is a big, this is a big stretch, right? This is a, a giant leap from where we were just several slides ago. So now that we've got you know, everything potentially in the cluster, people are feeling happy. They can see that their application has, you know, it's got a metrics endpoint that's being scraped by something. They can see some, some telemetry data. How do we go about querying? Well, I think that there are, there are, this is where the key um, distinction is around this experience versus the kind of naive implementation. And that is that we wanna split the experience between the personas. In my eyes, you've got three key personas, right? You've got the developer slash engineer, who's building the application, who's building features, wants to release. You've got the SRE, who's looking to reduce the level of entropy, right? Look at the data, be able to set up alerts and alarms. And you've got the stakeholders and product folks who are looking at the business insights and how do you start to um, have a holistic 50,000 foot view of your application, right? And, and, and also like, you know, what's the infrastructure underneath it? What's the cost? What components are working together? And so really my, my solution is to prescribe to some level a set of default dashboards that folks can build upon. And I mentioned that a moment ago, this idea of like, hey, this is a, a Grafana JSON net reuse template. We're gonna fill in the parameters of the basic service. You can do the same kind of uh, value add activity in Superset, right? Superset allows you to take that data a step further. You can take your three pillars of log metrics and telemetry, you pipe those through Apache Spark, you perform manipulation on that data in Druid, and you can then show that in Superset. And let me give you like an example of what I actually mean with that. So in Jaeger, you can set labels, um, tags, and baggage. You can set tags that would say, hey, this is my business unit. You can then have the same kind of label in your structured log. You can have the same kind of label in your metrics so that when you're creating a histogram, you can also see that label is, is there. And you're creating this cardinality between these three different uh, sources to create what is known as an event, right? Uh, that is essentially creating a highly dimensional event, which is a, it's an event with a lot of fields of data on it, so that you can then use, um, you know, OLAP processing capabilities. So, you know, analytical processes such as uh, Druid and Superset as a visualizer um, create that super high value add that people aren't really even thinking about at the moment. So, you know, all this said and done, what do users actually think? And I've taken kind of a few paraphrased quotes here from folks that I know. Um, and one, one said, you know, like as a, as a user, I can fork a repo, make some changes to the blueprint and have dashboards available. And they were happy with that, right? And then a second user said that, I love the Heroku-like experience of just pushing to develop, seeing the infrastructure build around my application. And specifically that's around like, you know, Prometheus gets auto-wired up and they don't have to do anything. And I think that's a really lovely testament to see that, you know, people, people definitely um, appreciate the DX improvement because it's the small things that add up to a lot of uh, frustration and we can try and reduce any of that uh, and reduce the entropy in the system, then we're, we're really winning here. So all that said, like, you know, what's next? You get to a state where you've got observability, you've got pipelines, you can auto build stuff, Prometheus, you know, Jaeger um, and, and FluentD going out to like Elasticsearch or something. What do you do next? Well, this is where you start introducing some additional concepts. And the, the kind of tangible outcome of these concepts is to reduce the complexity and again, make it more accessible. And service level objectives is really interesting because that is making it accessible through a new format. That is through the accessibility of language. That is making it so that you do not have to be a coder to explain what the desired behavior of a system is. And for anybody familiar with SLOs, you know, I can essentially give 
um, a double click into an SLA and say, well, you know, this system should perform at this kind of rate under these kind of conditions. And an SLO helps the SREs on a team to understand their kind of uh, modus operandi and what they should be aiming towards, right? And the second piece here, which is kind of a, a mouthful, and I, it's an internal term I, I don't really use that much, but auto-identified elective telemetry is the process of dropping metrics that you don't use and only collecting metrics that are actively being used in dashboards and also having the ability from the metric producer. So within the SDKs of say a spring library, only electing to show the metrics that are actively desiring to be scraped. And this can be done in a few ways. It can be done through having something as simple as a hash map and checking to see the last scrape time, or it could be something more complex where you're looking at the user routes inside an application. And if somebody's hitting your like credit card route all the time, you need to start making sure that you're producing to that route a lot. And this can also, uh, you know, uh, manifest itself in a few ways. Um, I've seen several machinations of this where you can suddenly start having a lot more labeling uh, counters and gauges on that particular um, you know, journey, or you can start to have a little bit more fidelity, um, again, double clicking down into this and start to expose more metrics. And we're getting to this kind of inflection point now where I believe the SDKs are going to start to be able to have that level of dynamic control uh, applied to them. So it's a bit like a feedback loop, right, with this uh, kind of elective telemetry. As you go to Prometheus and Grafana and you see that there's data missing, we can simply tune that through an um, initiative loop of feedback through the application to start exposing it. So all of that said, I think like, you know, what's the best of breed right now in the market? And it's very difficult to have a touchstone reference, but one of the ones that I think about is from a DX point of view and accessibility is, is you know, it's Firebase because they get it so right in so many places, you don't even think, oh yeah, that's actually a really observable product, but it's baked into the SDK, it's baked into the entire experience. And so, you know, when I'm trying to describe what is the difference between observability and monitoring? I use Firebase as a really great example to exemplify that you're looking at insights and behavior. And you know, in addition to this, one of the gold standards that's been around for years as well is Heroku, right? You can see through this, this demo, they've got somebody just looking with a mouse, right? They're clicking on a screen, looking at the visualizations. It's doing all the hard work for you, right? Anything that could be potentially causa uh, causation, it is separating out into separate histograms. It allows you to look through it in a really simplified manner. And it's the same level of data as you'd get through the, the, the infrastructure I showed earlier on, but its, present, its presentation layer is really quite something special. So my advice here is create an observability pit of success, right? Build systems that are so easy to use, so foolproof, so on rails that engineers almost don't need to think twice about it. The kind of requests you'll then be getting is, hey, this is so awesome. How do I then get somebody else to use it? And that's the real question is, how do you start to get that natural um, gravity forming around your product? And I think that you know, one of the best ways is to have champions. And this is the sort of thing that helps to breed champions. You'll get people wanting to contribute. You'll get folks wanting to say, hey, you know what? It's really great that I can send traces to Jaeger, but I also want to be able to see my, my log data in the same format. So I want to see Jaeger and my logs combined. And then that's when you start thinking about taking it a step further using the outputs of the OLAP platform and really creating a converged experience uh, altogether. So I've spoken for quite a bit of time there. Um, I just wanted to end that by saying, like, please feel free to always talk to me about this kind of stuff. A lot of the concepts that I've spoken about are, are used uh, at a handful of companies, but are being used, are being developed in earnest at many. So I think that you'll see a lot of the stuff I've described uh, come more publicly on the market in the next few years. And there are many groups 
such as the Open Telemetry Group, which are looking to solve some of these problems around um, making the three pillars more accessible through kind of ubiquitous schema. And, you know, I'm really excited to see what the future holds here. Thank you. Wow, fantastic. Um, a couple of questions uh, just on my end. <clears throat> you know, you, you were talking, well, I mean, first of all, just backtracking, you mentioned in the beginning, just in case some folks arrived a little bit late, you got your first work in, your first job in tech was working on mobile applications, correct? Yeah, so I actually, um, I joined a company in London, a small startup, and uh, I ended up writing a, a Java compiler that, well, assisting on writing this Java compiler that could help to take HTML and convert that into uh, Objective-C. I'm just saying, with, with, with that in mind, do you, it seems to me um, that when in terms of thinking about things about DX, usability, you mentioned Firebase, um, I think a lot of the testing that goes into to mobile applications is, is, is quite heavy. And I, I feel that that's still pervasive in, in your mindset in terms of how you approach things. I'm just saying for other folks that are out there, SREs that maybe haven't had as much contact with that, any resources that you would recommend? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think that um, fundamentally, a lot of my, my thinking doesn't come necessarily from the technology side at all. I, I think of people like Martin Fowler, and I think more around like how we build organizations um, a little like Conway's law, right? So we build organizations in structured silos. And I look to find opportunities to break down those silos. And one of those is to create platforms. And platforms are best, are best operated when they are easy to use. And as you said with mobile, mobile is often a touchstone reference for how good DX should be, right? And so, yeah, I think it's it's well put to say that there is an influencing factor there, but it's not something I actively, I actively seek out, but I think it definitely runs through my DNA. No, definitely. And the other thing as well, too, is, I mean, you walk into a meeting and because you mentioned, you know, you got the devs, you got the SREs, you've got the stakeholders, people more from the business side. And you say, all right, we're going to talk about auto-identified uh, elective telemetry. Telemetry, sorry. Yeah, I even screwed it up. Um, what kind of reactions are you going to get? Anticipating the doubts that folks might have with that. Earlier, we were talking about Daft Punk. That sounds like the name of a Daft Punk album. Or sure. that it certainly could have been. Um, yeah, how, do you, how do you bring these concepts, you know, down to earth? Uh, I mean, sometimes folks can feel stupid for not understanding it. And then there's tension and friction and resistance. And like you said, the goal of simplifying it, what's your strategy? Yeah, so you have to be very contextual, I think. And, and it's, it's just part of, I think, the experience of knowing how to present to various um, groups within an organization. But it's, it's absolutely right. And it's, it's, it's a prevalent problem, I think, in the interoperability at large companies, right? Someone walks into a room and says, throw out everything. I've got this great idea. We're going to do this. We're going to do auto-identifying telemetry. Um, really, it's about selling the tangible outcome. It's about building the narrative, right? All I'm talking about there is taking metrics a step further and having some automatic ones that get created. But it's done so in a way in these conversations where you're taking people on that journey. You're saying, hey, this is your problem space. This is your application. This is what we don't know about that application. How do we make this a better system so that we as, as uh, you know, essentially hosts of the platform can make sure you get the data you need, need and you as tenants don't really have to do much work, but at the same time, it's, it's sustainable. And so, you know, for me, it's all narrative driven. It has to be about taking them on that journey, trying to ex explain to people and get their own minds to sort of agree and, and to buy into it because at the same time, it's not one directional, right? I'm not a prophet here. Like we make, I make plenty of mistakes all the time, mm. but you know, what I try to do is at least like have that conversation in, in, a, in, a, in a manner where it's like, it's not a mandate it is more like a suggestion of let's go on this journey together. Mm -hmm. With that in mind as well too, and talking about journeys and, you know, cause people arrive to organizations with different mindsets, different backgrounds, 
you in your case with mobile app development, and then obviously eventually in uh, this trajectory to becoming an SRE, other folks, you know, come from different backgrounds. And sometimes, as you mentioned earlier on, with the element of tooling, I've mentioned this in more than a couple of meetups. I was in a company where um, one person got a salary increase and another person ended up leaving because of a battle over Team City versus Jenkins. Um, to keep, you know, emotions calm and things like that, uh, once again, particularly different stakeholders, people that join at different times, any advice on how to make those conversations easier? Yeah, so I think that's that's one of these like um, typical tropes, isn't it? Where you, you kind of have uh, very passionate engineers who have a level of like entrenchment in the argument. And I think the problem is you can't really back down, right? Once you've entrenched yourself in like, no, no, t- Team City's the way, um, you know, you, you, can never, you can never back down or you'll lose face. And so I think really um, the strategy that I tend to employ around this stuff is to actually separately talk through the arguments, look through the kind of, uh, motivations and actually work through the problem together, not with their competitor necessarily, but you will arrive at a similar point where they say, okay, well, you know, there are a few options here. Like, and then what you do is you sort of create a working group and you give them, and this is the most important point, is you give them the autonomy to make the decision, right? You say between the two of you, you can make the decision. It's not my decision to make, but you've got to come out with a united, uh, unanimous solution here. And I think 99% of the time, the kind of social um, interaction that, that comes out of that is one of the ways, it's one of the great equalizers and people sort of end up saying, yeah, you know what, this is going to be the best for the company, right? I see what you mean. And that's something, having some conversations with folks in the CNCF, more often than not, if you can find a way to make, like you said, give ownership, responsibility, you're the decision maker, um, there's empowerment in making as many winners as possible. And it's a, it's a good way to often to avoid that. However, though, as well, too, and I want to take this a little bit further. Um, as someone who's quite active in Twitter, there's a lot of aggression and high emotions, you know, frequently running in Twitter. I think that you've been able to find a voice that's very positive, that's very supportive. Um, I wish others could do the same. What do you think we need to do to make spaces like Twitter really more constructive rather than a call-out culture, almost hoping for somebody to make a mistake to, you know, take a screenshot and blow them up? Um, you know, these kind of spaces to make it really just more focused on learning and celebrating, what can we do to be better? Well, I mean, look, if we, if we kind of go back to first principles here, Twitter is just a force multiplier, isn't it? It just gives you that kind of like uh, that, that boost to your own voice. And I think that it just brings out those latent characteristics. And so I think that people like myself, you know, I'm kind of just there to, uh, yeah, to be positive and to meet people and to sort of uh, talk about stuff that, that, that that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, how do we, how do we, how do we build, build a change away from that? I think that we already have that change. We have communities. And I think the, the, the thing that's not really apparent, but there's an immense amount of work going on in the open source communities. Um, I'm not talking just tech specifically here, but there are, there are communities that attract people and there are some really good folks. And I think specifically of like, you know, the CNCF you mentioned, um, you know, that actually have mentorship schemes. They bring people in. So there's not a hostile environment to work in. And, you know, you've got, You've got now companies with a Twitter presence and it's really changed the game, right? Because if you work somewhere, your company's on Twitter, your boss is on Twitter, it's starting to change that landscape a bit, I think. But I don't think it'll ever be the case that it's a, it's a completely kind of like, uh, you know, sanitized, safe space. I think there's always going to be a level of volatility there. But in some sense, maybe that's really um, part of part of what it's all about so that you realize there is toxicity that isn't worth getting involved with. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not a spin doctor for Twitter, for Twitter here, but, you know, I definitely think that there is plenty of opportunity if you look for it in much more friendly communities on Discord and, and, and through through other means. That's a good point. Um, that don't, you know, don't lose a force for the trees. That like, although there yeah. might be this sort of appearance that's out there, like, 
once you start really getting into it, just at least in, in my limited experience participating in the CNCF as someone who doesn't have a technical background, but now a contributor experience SIG and, and really, really enjoying it. And so it's my one hour a week on Fridays and I get to be with really wonderful people. And, and I really insist to everybody that's out there. And you, I would like to hear about other communities that you're in as well, too. Everybody should find, there's a community out there for everybody, right? Like, and also in the, in the case of the CNCF, it's just one hour a week. You know, that's the minimum. You just have to sit, you don't even have to be participating just to watch and observe and see where you can kind of lend a helping hand. Um, in terms of other things, because you mentioned in your, in, your, in your first and also your last slide about some other places where, where you're actively involved. Can you just go over that real quickly? Yeah, so um, let me just show you. My last slide was more, yeah. um, more just discussion, uh, discussion points. So yeah, I mean, uh, observability is a little bit of kind of the space I'm working with. I work a lot in the FAS space. You know, things I think about keep me up at night are like, you know, pod limitations on a cluster, function density of FAS, looking at like the underlying microkernel of like firecracker, stuff like that. And I also work a lot with, um, you know, products like open policy agent and, and security and clusters. And kind of the, um, the lowest common denominator here is it's all technology that I think is going to be uh, very human centric in enabling folks to be able to work with cloud infrastructure, right? K3s is a really good example. It's simple Kubernetes. I like it because you can teach it to school children, right? Anybody can pick it up. And especially with like the um, Git pod, which is a, a like a VS code style extension for GitLab, sorry, for, for GitHub, being able to then plug into a repository, anybody can now start coding, right? You don't need a Mac or Pro. You can just use Git pod plus K3s somewhere. And hey, I'm, I'm learning how to be a cloud engineer. I just think that's beautiful. So, you know, the communities I really want to get involved in aren't necessarily the communities that even exist yet. I want to have more communities focused around like education, onboarding. I think that there are some dedicated CNCF communities around kind of the, um, the, the advocacy piece. But mm. yeah, I think we need, we need to be thinking like, you know, the, the, kids of, the kids of today, like how would you explain to them service mesh, right? And how do, you, how do you go about teaching somebody about load balancing FAS functions um, and that kind of stuff? So I would love to be able to sort of work in that area. And so this is precisely why I have these kind of coffee mornings on Twitter, because mm -hmm. I meet a hell of a lot of people and I'm getting a, a resounding kind of uh, feedback that, yeah, we should be doing this. So yeah, if there isn't a community, build one. I, I completely agree. It's good to hear that. And we will definitely have to talk about that when we have coffee in a couple of weeks. Because I completely agree is that until you're able to explain what you're working on to a child or not even a child is that a lot of people just take for granted that everybody knows about this stuff. Sure. If you're talking to your partner, your neighbor, your circle of friends or a family member, things like that. How can you put these things in, in simple enough terms so that they can be understood by anybody and make these things more accessible and make these barriers of entry not, not, so, not so challenging? Um, a couple other things, just because we, we said we we're going to talk about this. Being able to relate some of the things you do in, in your free time, um, whether it's playing music, uh, collecting records, uh, bouldering, stuff like that. What's the relationship between that and what you do professionally? Yeah, so I think there's, um, there's like a dichotomy, isn't there? Like, I, I really think that um, doing something physical, like I, I, I was actually trained to be a yoga teacher last year. Oh. I was starting my training until the pandemic happened. But I think doing something physical and something where you can sort of almost like go into autopilot on your brain is a great way of letting the engine cool down and just being able to be a bit more um, subconscious, right? Using the kind of uh, default kernel rather than the user land. And it really, it really kind of appeals to me, this idea that you can go out, you can do some bouldering or you can go cycling or whatever, and you come back and you can, you can kind of come and really refocus on a problem. Because I do really believe that if you just sit there kind of obsessing, you get this level of toxicity and bad energy where it's sort of just like, I, I just can't get rid of this anxiety. I've got to solve this one thing and it doesn't help anyone. And that kind of intersects with that whole Twitter 
conversation of you get a lot of that who folks who just don't have a healthy outlook. Um, and I think that obviously in a pandemic, it's really easy to say that, but you know, even if it's the case of like, I took up running quite recently and that's helped me so much mentally, just being able to, you know, have that chill out time. Me too. I completely agree. Um, and so now yeah, it's something I very much try to integrate as part of my daily routine. Once again, it's not that there's, you know, one size fits all for everybody. Everybody's got to find their own. Right. Thing. Right. It could be, find something. it could be something else. Right. Yeah. Just exactly. Find something. Um, all right, we're, we're, we're almost out of time. So uh, we always have a tradition. You met this person when we started. Um, Gorka, can you share my screen? So while you were talking, we had our wonderful friend Angel, who created this <laughs> amazing piece of art to reflect the different concepts that you were covering. Um, That's amazing. And so he always does a wonderful job creating these summary, visual summaries of the, of the things that have been mentioned during the talks. You as somebody as well, too, I find it interesting as being a visual, we can say thinker, learner, or explainer, the drawings that you create are super easy to follow. When did you start drawing? Um, so, yeah, I mean, this takes me back to like five, six years ago. I found it very difficult to articulate stuff. You might have, you might be able to tell I, I speak quite quickly and it's one of my, my kind of problems I need to work, work through. But I found it really easy to focus, to anchor the conversation when you had a diagram. And everything I saw was rubbish. I hate UML. I mean, some people love it, but I, I don't like mermaid diagrams. I'm like, a, I like artistic stuff. I got like a, you know, my little Apple pen here. Nice. Um, I like drawing and it just, it just immediately hit off, right? People really liked it. They liked saying, okay, well, this piece here and this piece here. And what I found was, and again, coming back to accessibility, is people in the room who wouldn't necessarily talk felt enabled, right? They felt like the conversation was suddenly more accessible to them because they could refer to a touchstone on the screen saying, oh yeah, well, that box there versus this thing there, how do they work? And like, it was like, um, it was like wildfire, it was really great. I'm afraid I have to. Um, I have to shoot very soon. But I'm no, no, no worries. No worries. We're pretty much. We're pretty much done. That's it. Cool. So thanks to so, thank much, you so much. Thank you, Alex. Great to have you. We'll definitely have to have you back. Um, we will so continue much. the conversation in Slack for folks that had questions. Thanks a lot, and we will see you on Thursday in our following meetup with Sebastian Paul from Upstreets. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a good one.